Turning around, Jesus saw them following and asked, what do you want? In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. You may have a seat. I love a good whodunit. Sherlock Holmes, Hercule Poirot, Father Brown, they are delightful to me. The reveal is such a payoff moment for all the time spent in the book or movie, picking up clues and making connections. I have been known to, potentially annoyingly, pause movies and shows right before the big reveal and say, so what do we know? (laughs) Many years back, I was reading an Inspector Chen novel, um, Red Mandarin Dress by Chu Xiaolong. I was enjoying reading it, and halfway through the book, all of a sudden, the killer was revealed. I remember thinking, wait, what? (laughs) What is happening? How do I have so much book left to go? (laughs) I already know. Our passage from John today is a little like that for me. In other Gospels, you often have this slow build of titles for Jesus. Rabbi here, Son of God a few chapters later, and so on. You're getting the clues slowly. The Gospel of Mark even operates a little like that mystery, building to a grand, you are the Messiah moment. But in John's first chapter, we have Jesus named in rapid succession, Lamb of God, Rabbi, Messiah, the one Moses wrote about, Son of God, King of Israel, Son of Man, Jesus of Nazareth. If we're honest, a reveal with little buildup is not terribly satisfying. Did John just give the game away? Did he save us a click and just tell us the article's main point? Is the book essentially done? As we approach our text today, mindful that these names for Jesus are given out like candy, and that we are still in chapter one, what are we looking for here? What are you looking for is, in fact, another way to translate Jesus' words to the disciples following him. In our text, it reads, what do you want? But it can be just as easily be translated, what are you looking for? So let's consider what we're looking for with two sight-related phrases from our passage. I saw you, and you will see. In the classic 80s movie, The Breakfast Club, Ali Sheedy plays Allison Reynolds, an oddball outcast who goes from not speaking to sharing herself in profound ways with four fellow high schoolers over the course of a Saturday detention. There's one moment played with particular tenderness and drama. Andrew, played by Emilio Estevez, asks her, So what's wrong? What is it? Is it bad? Real bad? Parents? Yeah, she says. He asks gently, what did they do to you? She replies, they ignore me. 
One of the beautiful features of this passage is the way we're privy to Jesus's noticing of others. Jesus does not ignore people. He saw the disciples following behind. He looked at Simon. He found Philip. He saw Nathanael approaching. The gaze of Jesus rests on each person he encounters. And what's fascinating is that none of these encounters add up. Andrew and another disciple spent the day with Jesus, saw where he was staying. Then Andrew finds his brother and doesn't just say, could this be the Messiah? But says, we have found the Messiah. <laughs> that was quick. Simon is given a nickname with no explanation. Philip follows at a word. Nathaniel's interaction is possibly the most perplexing, and it has the most dialogue. Let's linger there. Nathaniel comes skeptically to see Jesus. He seems to be the only one who might at all behave like we would when someone is making a big claim. It's the best movie ever. Yeah, sure. It changed the way I exercised. Okay, buddy, calm down. <laughs> but he investigated. He approached. And Jesus said, here truly is an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. Jesus does this little bit of wordplay. Israel, known as Jacob, was a man well known for deceiving his brother. And Nathaniel replies, how do you know me? It's not immediately clear to me how much skepticism is present in this question, but from the progression in this passage, there's at least something genuine, something intriguing to Nathaniel about Jesus' statement. Jesus answered, I saw you while you were still under the fig tree before Philip called you. This blows his mind. Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. The implication here as a true Israelite is Nathaniel saying, you are my king. What change has taken place? Are there cultural cues that can enlighten us, let us in on the secret of why this is such a powerful moment? Why is this so profound an experience for Nathaniel? There isn't really any. <laughs> Scholars kind of play around with like, okay, well, this is what we can say about fig trees. This is what we can say about sitting, you know, but almost all of them give this good caveat of, well, this is all conjecture. We don't know. But what we can say is that somehow Jesus' dual statements to Nathaniel, I see who you are, and I saw you when you thought you were out of sight, cut through his misgivings. For Jesus, sight is much more than what he can see through his eyes. Jesus possesses profound and prophetic insight. Maybe you've experienced some of that yourself. Heard the voice of God in prayer, in scripture, or through the words of a friend calling something out in you, naming you. Some powerful reminder that you have been seen by God in places you felt obscured, in places you felt out of sight, 
in places where you may have experienced the pain of being ignored. Maybe you're in one of those places of obscurity, one of those places of feeling ignored today. Bosses who are blind to your potential. Those closest to us, friends, spouses, children, who have access to us intimately, but sometimes give us names that are ill-fitting. Pastors whom we hoped would be that vessel for feeling seen by God, and for whatever reason, that connection feels stilted, not all that we hoped. Those people are going to make those mistakes. And God himself has not lost sight of you. One of the answers to what are we looking for might be just that. We're looking to be seen. To be seen as we truly are. To be seen in ways that invite us in and call us in faith. For call faith and understanding out of us, surpassing what we had maybe moments before. In Jesus, we see a fresh expression of the sight and the insight of God. As these disciples, as each of them is seen in our passage, we become aware of how we too are seen here in this room. We are seen and beheld in love in this moment and the moments before. Moments of anxiety, fear, and confusion. Moments of delight, connection, and rest. Jesus says to us today, I saw you. But Jesus says more. You believe because I told you I saw you under the fig tree. You will see greater things than that. One of the things I've loved, come to love about John's gospel is the way it works almost like a mockumentary style. In a normal show, it's practically a crime to look directly into the camera. But in a mockumentary like The Office or Parks and Rec, or if you're really fancy in a documentary, <laughs> the, the characters <laughs> look at you through the camera. <laughs> They involve you in the insanity and hilarity of a situation. In John's gospel, Jesus is seemingly looking over the shoulder of whoever he's talking to, involving us, talking to us. When he says, you will see greater things than that, he's not just talking to his disciples in that moment. He's telling us, the readers, something over their shoulders. We have all these titles of Jesus, but the book isn't over. There is more to see. Jesus then added, Very truly I tell you, you will see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Here again we have a reference to Jacob, the original Israelite. In Genesis chapter 28, Jacob had a dream. He dreamed of a stairway or ladder resting on the earth, with the top of it reaching to heaven. And I know this will shock you, angels of God ascending and descending on it. 
God speaks from the top of the stairs and reiterates promises of provision and presence. And in that passage, Jacob's response gives clues to the dream's meaning and its significance here for us today. When Jacob awoke from his sleep, he thought, surely the Lord is in this place, and I was not aware of it. He was afraid and said, how awesome is this place. This is none other than the house of God. This is the gate of heaven. What will these disciples, what will Andrew and Peter and Philip and Nathaniel see? They don't literally see the cosmos torn apart. They don't see angels in John's Gospels. Only Mary Magdalene does. But they do see, in the chapters that follow, heaven open, the presence of God made manifest in Jesus' deeds and life. And they will be able to look at him and say, the Lord is in this place. This, Jesus of Nazareth, is the gate of heaven. Another answer to the question of what we are looking for might be as simple as this. We are looking for God in this place. We want to understand and participate in this world and in our own lives in meaningful ways. And we get that there is some sense of transcendence, that there is something more, that there is something there and there is something here, and we don't always know how to make sense of it. Our world does not know how to make sense of it. In the words of John earlier in the same chapter, the world did not recognize him. But the truth remains that in Jesus, these things come together. And just as there can be a type of pain that comes with feeling unseen, there is also a type of pain that comes from not being able to see God in this place. Where is God in this season of life? Who is God in this season of life? In what way could he possibly be bringing heaven to earth? The heavens feel welded shut. It's helpful to remember and to remind ourselves that the men in this passage and the men and women we read about in scripture were not more gullible than us. They did not live less complicated lives where the stakes were less significant. These questions would not feel wholly unfamiliar, especially when they felt they had been waiting hundreds of years for the Messiah. We walk well-trodden ground with proven guides, and that is a comfort. The revelation of Jesus and John isn't merely the plethora of titles we see in this chapter, a whodunit spoiled at the start. The revelation of John is that in Jesus, we see the face of God. The book Red Manor and Dress gave away the mystery halfway through the book, and I had to give up on reading it as a whodunit. Instead, the author awakened me to the themes of life in the wake of the cultural revolution in China, the ways corruption and the CCP is interwoven into seemingly disconnected stories, and the beauty and gift of Chinese poetry. It was a great book. Many of us know the Sunday School Answer, 
of who Jesus is. We could have filled in a couple of those blanks. If it was like a fill-in-the-blank passage this morning, you probably could have gotten a couple of them. But in Jesus, in John, he will be drawing us deeper in still. And as the weeks go on in our series, I want to encourage us to keep attentive to this. That with each sign, with each encounter, the glory of God is being made known to us. Even in a season where it feels as if heaven is cut off from us, we can have confidence that like these disciples, when we draw near to Jesus, God is in this place. Jacob's dream didn't put the Lord in that place. Jacob's dream only revealed his presence. Surely the Lord is in this place, and I was not aware of it. When we can't see Jesus offers words of promise and words of hope. You will see. What do you want? These are the first words spoken by Jesus in John's gospel. And as we follow Jesus into this gospel in our lives today and here together, and as we join Jesus at his table today, hear his question to you. What are you looking for? Maybe this morning it is to be seen by him, to hear afresh, or maybe for the first time, I saw you. Maybe this morning you're looking to see him or to hear his encouragement to hold on to the hope of seeing God in this place. Maybe we come to this morning with more than us on our minds. We bring into this room loved ones who are hurting, loved ones who have yet to meet Jesus, who feel far from his transformative gaze. Is there a way with genuine affection and curiosity you might ask them, what are you looking for? About 15 years ago, I met up with a woman that had been part of a presentation at the University of Texas, um, and she had been giving this presentation with a man on the destructive power of pornography. And she was a believer and had a ministry to women who worked in clubs in Las Vegas. And as a former dancer herself and as someone who had been in the porn industry, she knew what her friends were longing for. She knew how to listen. And she told me, you know, many of the girls can't read. I can't read that well. But I know that if I can just get them in front of Jesus, their lives will change. She understood that whatever their longings were, Jesus is mixed up in that. He has profound and prophetic insight into their lives. So her instinct was to care for her friends who were in one sense overexposed and in a truer sense totally unseen and to say, come and see Jesus. Jesus' response to the disciples' question was, come and see. Philip's response to Nathaniel's skepticism wasn't to take offense. It was to invite. Come and see. May we have that same confidence in Jesus' presence, that same faith. 
and whatever we came looking for this morning. The good news of John's gospel is that in Jesus, God has made himself known. Not begrudgingly, but abundantly. This is merely chapter one. And he turns towards us, even when we hang in the back or lurk at the edges, and invites us, come and see. May we not only see, but be seen by the one for whom we are looking. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.